The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. Well then, round two. I started the podcast in 2017 because it intrigued me. Hamlet, this great masterpiece of dramatic literature, just didn't seem like a play I wanted to direct. 182 episodes later, I can happily report that the play has changed my life and the time will certainly come, soon I hope, for me to direct it with great zeal. But as I thought about what play might suit as a follow-up, I did think about King Lear, but honestly, it had to be Macbeth. Macbeth was the first Shakespeare play I got excited about. It was the one I did for the Leaving Certificate, Ireland's state exams at the end of secondary school. And it's also the play that made me want to be a theatre director. I got so frustrated in class as we had to craft answers to things like discuss the use of animal imagery in the play, when I wanted to be talking about the extraordinary characters and relationships and crimes and twists and drama and, yes, witchcraft of the piece. It's a play that demands to be performed. It's not a text really to be read. It's perennially popular and, of course, it's swathed in rumours and tragedies and curses and superstitions. So I think we'll have plenty to talk about. I've seen more productions of Macbeth than any other Shakespeare play, both on stage and on screen. It's possibly my favourite play, although picking favourites makes me nervous. But it's a great one, and I'm very excited to get started on it with you. This time around, we'll make our way through a little differently. We'll cover up to about 30 lines per week, and so perhaps the episodes will be a few minutes longer, but not much. If a scene is less than 30 lines, we will cover it in a single episode, and this will be the case right now. At the end of each scene, again, there'll be a bonus episode. This time around, I think, covering landmark productions of the play rather than major figures in its history. We will have a lot to discuss in the way that this play was written well into the reign of King James I, the sixth King James of Scotland. This was a man who was utterly obsessed with witches and with their eradication from his good Christian realm. Much of the play feels, as we will discover, as though it was written to entertain and intrigue the king, not least with its being set in Scotland and with its startling opening. Shakespeare wastes no time and presents us with three witches in a deserted place. Act 1. Scene 1. The stage directions call for thunder and lightning as the three witches enter. This could have been created with drumming, or perhaps with rolling barrels, or indeed with large sheets of metal or pliable wood being shaken in the background. It's a big shock of an opening, and as perhaps the smoke clears, if there is any, we see these three curious figures together, perhaps coming to the end of their business. Three is always a magic number, particularly for groups of magical women. The Gorgons, the Fates, the Graces, the Norns in Götterdämmerung and in Scandinavian mythology, you name it. From ancient Greece to Hocus Pocus, powerful groups of theatrical witches come in threes. Shakespeare's three are among the most famous, and their language is endlessly quoted and discussed. The first witch asks, When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? Already we have a rhythm, 
and a rhyming system. Again, rain. These are short, almost sing-song, rhyming lines of about seven syllables each. The first witch, perhaps secretary of this supernatural board meeting, is tying things up and wondering where their next meeting might be. She gives a clear sense of their dark and mysterious practices when she suggests that they're more likely to meet in foul weather, thunder, lightning, or in rain. The second witch answers. When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. To our contemporary ears, hurly-burly sounds like a fairly silly word. It's been used and abused for so long that its curious rhyming nature seems a little bit fluffy, like something whimsical. It was a more formal word when Shakespeare was using it. Indeed, there are several sources that suggest that it was serious enough to appear in various translations of Seneca's tragedies. The second which here means that when the business is done, when the ongoing action is concluded, and to clarify, she rhymes, when the battle's lost and won. This phrase is a vital, vital introduction to how these witches communicate. They are brilliant equivocators. We'll have a lot to discuss about equivocation in the coming months too. The witches invariably show two sides of everything. They don't commit to anything, and they allow for possibility and perspective on all sides. Even here, this witch is suggesting that the battle will of course be lost by some and won by others, but she doesn't say who. It's simple enough to understand, but it's essential to the way these women operate. And lest we get too comfortable with this rhythm of two lines each, Shakespeare throws a curveball already and has the third witch pipe in here, rhyming with her too. She informs us, that will be ere the set of sun. So we have, when the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that will be ere the set of sun. So we could believe that this battle that they've mentioned will be over today and that they'll be meeting again before the sun goes down. But of course the sun goes down every day, so we shouldn't necessarily trust it, even that. In turn, and in rhythm, the three speak again. Where the place, upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. Here Shakespeare gives us a little hint of our setting. We are in Scotland, and so these witches in this bad weather will be out meeting on a heath. And at this next meeting, they'll meet with Macbeth. I know it's a tiny thing, but that's what we're here for. The first witch was wondering when they'd meet again, and now the third witch says that they'll meet with Macbeth. In Shakespeare's usage, to meet with someone was quite an adversarial thing. You'd meet with enemies in battle, and so on. So there's an ominous shade to the way these witches are planning to encounter the title character. They meet each other, but they meet with Macbeth. Whether we've registered this or not, we now get some spooky little details designed to prove that these are witches and to, to show King James or any other witch fanatics that Shakespeare knows his stuff. Again in order, one, two and three, the three figures cry out, I come, Grey Malkin. Paddock calls, anon. This makes absolutely no sense to us now without context, but what Shakespeare is showing here is that these women are all under the spell of the devil. A sure sign of a woman being a witch 
was that she would have a familiar, some demon animal that would help her to communicate with the supernatural. Here, all three ladies, seemingly out of nowhere, are heard answering a kind of call. I come, Grey Malkin. She's answering, yes, I'm coming. This was apparently a cat, a very common breed of familiar. The second one says, Paddock calls. This is the second witch's familiar, and Paddock was a toad. The third witch doesn't identify who's calling her, but, like a good Shakespearean servant, she replies simply with anon. Something like, I'm coming, yes, I've heard you, and I will do what you bid. The three witches, before they do go, wind up their charms with a final couplet, spoken by all three of them. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. Again we get this language that plays both sides of things. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. It's so short and it's so simple, but it's so untrustworthy. Things are not what they seem. Things really are not to be trusted. Witches were also reputed to be able to fly. So when they end this opening number with this line that follows, we're left wondering if they actually can fly or hover through the nasty, gloomy air on this Scottish heath. As opening scenes to a play go, this is pretty brilliant. We get special effects, we have a sense of the location and the weather, the fact that there's a battle ongoing somewhere and we're going to need to hear its outcome, that there are witches abroad in this strange country, and that they're planning some kind of business with our title character. It's barely ten lines in, and already a very exciting play is underway. It's just brilliant. Unfortunately, there is no more to Act 1, Scene 1, so we'll have to leave it there for now. But for more information and for show notes to accompany this episode, be sure to check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com. I think we're going to have some growing pains with this where we're talking about Macbeth, but it's still the Hamlet podcast. But bear with me. I think we've got this. There is a whole new section of the site dedicated to this new exploration of Macbeth. But of course, you can still find all of the Hamlet, book club, basics and bonus materials on the website as well. If you're excited about this new chapter, do please tell your friends online and in person. You can tag us on all social media at Hamlet Podcast. Although I'm not on TikTok and I'm probably not going to be. I do always love hearing from you. And as a bonus, thank you to the very generous folks who've been supporting me via coffee. Certain episodes will be released early to everyone who's reached out that way. All material will reach everyone eventually, but I do want to show my sincere thanks for the support. I hope you are as excited as I am about this new adventure, and I'll speak to you next time.